Welcome to another week of What Can You Tell Me About Software, where we discuss software and its broader impact on the world. It seems like technology plays a more important role in medicine every single day, and there are few things that affect more people than medicine. In light of COVID-19 and the medical technologies it's brought to light, we thought it'd make for an interesting episode to interview an expert on the subject. We're excited to have Hema Chumraj, who's a director at Intel, an artificial intelligence solutions expert, a leader in health and life sciences, and a strong voice for ethical AI. I'm really excited to see what she has to say. Let's get right into it. Emma, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So I really wanted to start this off uh, before we get into it with a really quick story. A few years ago, I went to a speech given by Vinod Kosla. For some context, Vinod is this well-known sort of respected investor, entrepreneur in the Valley. And I remember one of the things he sort of said at this speech that was really striking to me is he said, if you want to make the deepest impact in medicine, don't go to Stanford Medical School, go to the mathematics department at Stanford and learn everything you can. And the gist of what he's trying to get across was the future of medicine really lies with the software engineers, the biomedical engineers, the mathematicians of the world, and not necessarily the doctors. Hmm. Would you say this is true? You know, I have an interesting uh, approach to that, right? I mean, it's, it's, and I just really respect the nose because he's, a, you know, he's one of the brightest minds when it comes to investing. The, the way I look at it is you really need both. You need the biology that the physicians, because they are trained to kind of look at uh, patients from a human perspective and they understand the disease perspective. So the, there are many perspectives that the, the doctors bring, but what they lack is the other ways that technology could be of help. And so that is what we need to bring to bear to complement what they already have. So to kind of say that, you know, we don't need doctors and we just start with, with just a computation is it's something that I, I generally kind of try to think that, you know, you need both perspectives to kind of really get the, the benefit for how technology can be of real impact. And so that's the way I look at it. And so if you think about the curriculum that's coming out, right, for medicine these days, this is they're incorporating, you know, the, the technology aspect into their curriculum because that's the future. Many of my colleagues who have been at Intel, you know, the best ones are the ones that who have the physician background and that they also have the computer science background. And this is my um, colleague who is really able to make the highest impact because he can understand both perspectives, the human perspective, the disease perspective, the, the technology perspective. And that, that is so rich. We are kind of working with them to bring them to understand what is AI, what are the ways that AI can be used. And, you know, what are some of the issues and things that we should be looking for and, and, and jointly address it, right? That's really interesting. Actually, when I think of Intel, I think of semiconductors, but you're speaking mm. to Intel working in AI for medicine. So what exactly mm-hmm. are you guys doing in terms of AI and medicine? Yeah, people think of Intel as the chips that are there in their PCs, right? But it's in- quite interesting if you look at you know, what we really do we, uh, if, at, at a basic level, right? You have to think of Intel as a company that produces these processors from anything that computes or communicates, right? That usually has some element of Intel in it because it's the processors and also the developed software so that we can enable, you know, the, the features of that hardware to come to life. And so the software is a very big focus for us and then the equals the larger ecosystem, right? That we bring to bear our customers and partners. And as we look into who's using our technology, it's really across all the different public and private sectors, right? Like 
it's healthcare it's education it's financial institutions it's manufacturing and so on and so forth so healthcare happens to be an area that i have been focusing in, along with my you know many people at intel you know for the last 10 plus years and then when we think about ai it is quite interesting how there are places where there was high adoption of ai in certain parts of healthcare i would not say everywhere but certain parts of healthcare really took ai and adopted it so you know this is a very very important time to be working on problems in healthcare because we're experiencing one of the greatest global health crises of our lifetimes in all mm-hmm. likelihood so mm-hmm. i wanted to ask what sort of technical innovations are being put into place in terms of mm-hmm. software in terms of hardware to fight covid right people have this you know high expectations of what ai can do and so it felt like some people in the initial stages when we were going through the initial phases of covid testing and there was a feeling that ai uh, has not quite fulfilled its uh, promise right but then if you sit back and look at it ai has actually made a huge impact and I'll, i'll let me walk through some of the examples we had to have to disinfect a lot of things there was the disinfectant robots was very much useful just to going like if you're thinking about ct and mri machine these are huge machines and it takes a, a long time to just you know disinfect them if you're doing it manually between all the patient visits the disinfectant robots are one of the ones that was right off at the very basic level but coming in and kind of able to do it and they were able to kind of detect that the humans are around and so they cannot be doing the disinfecting so they stop and then they do it when they are not around that's a very simple example of ai playing a role there but when you think about other things like you know medical imaging and the medical imaging is the place where i told you in the beginning there are pockets where of healthcare which adopted health ai pretty easily that was medical imaging because medical imaging clearly was a place where you know whether you you could detect as the testing became harder because of the lack of tests the one place that we could see the bright spot was that medical imaging was already adopted and there were quickly tools were created to do the detection of covid. I wanted to explore that a little further. So, mm-hmm. yeah, in the field of AI mm-hmm. uh, applications, it's it's widely known that tumor detection for x-ray technicians is basically mm-hmm. the gold standard of AI. It performs so incredibly well mm-hmm. that uh, a lot of people are looking for other applications that are as good as as tumor detection. So, mm-hmm. yeah, can you speak more to using similar scanning techniques for covid? If you think about medical imaging, right? Like, you know, way back when I think in 2009, 2010 when even stanford was doing all this research around deep learning and there was a lot of activity around imagenet and if you remember the databases where we were doing all this you know image classification right the same technology you know has now been adopted by the top medical imaging companies whether it's ge siemens philips or x-rays to ultrasounds to mri machines uh, right ct scanners all of them has have some sort of ai embedded in them since the past i would say 5 plus years there has been this uh, rapid innovation they were already equipped and some of the examples i could give you before pre covid were like an x ray machine right people are you know there are technicians who are just going through one by one as the patients come in to take the x ray and w- let's say there was a guy who walked in guy or gal who walked in and had a collapsed lung and if you look at the x ray that is something that you should immediately be kind of you know flagged and you should get immediate attention but uh, so there should be something smart inside the x-ray that could say that this is a high you know this is a collapsed lung and this needs immediate attention so the technician may not be able to say it because the data has to go to a radiologist who's doing 
who's looking at it at a later time, but putting that smart test right there into your X-ray to kind of flag for that is so important. And so that's an example of what was done pre-COVID. And so that is where you have heard, you know, that because AI-enhanced image acquisition kind of takes away all that variation out, it creates a consistency where everybody can see the same images produced in the same manner, and then the interpretation, you know, allows it, it allows for less interpretation. So the cardiac MRIs and the x-rays for pneumothorax, you know, collapsed lungs, or think about anything, right? Like, you know, labor assistance or nerve tracking or brain bleed. These are so many examples I can think of where we have worked with our partners to kind of use medical imaging and AI to solve problems that could not be solved before. But when COVID came on, it was very easy to kind of say that this is what we are trying to uh, uh, develop a model and put it into the workflow in a very short period. This was something that, especially in Korea, we saw that they started doing this as when the COVID started, that they started getting a lot of these models created for detecting the the COVID and putting it into the in the regulatory framework and getting it done. And then from there on, from we saw all the other geos and geographies kind of adopting it. So that was a very good use of medical imaging for COVID uh, detection. Sure. Um, and you were mentioning prior to COVID, there were a lot of these innovations that were also occurring. But now that we're sort of nearing the end of COVID, I hope, where do you see drug discovery? Where do you see AI and what role does AI play in drug discovery going forward? I, I feel like, you know, that area of drug discovery, drug repurposing, this is the area that is going through disruption. And I, I have to take you back pre-COVID to kind of tell, share with you what was uh, what was being done. Because if you think about drug discovery, right, if, I mean, it's, it's a long, laborious process. Some, it takes the, in sometimes decades and it takes billions of dollars, $2.5 billion per drug. You're dealing with lives and you're dealing with patient safety. And obviously a lot of care is taken to kind of do that. But this is what is involved in de- developing a drug. And then 90% of them don't make it to the finish line into the regulatory framework and get past that because uh, that, that is the failure rate that we have. And think of, and AI you know, came into this space, some of the early adopters, like startups is where you'll see the innovation happen first. And there is a company called Atomwise that they looked at Ebola and said, you know, what kinds of treatments that we could be um, creating? And and they took some 7,000 drugs out there that were already created for a different purpose and, and then said, you know, so how do we narrow it down to 20 drug targets that could potentially work for Ebola. Now, if you think about just that activity right there, like taking 7,000 drugs that were already, they've gone through the clinical trials and bringing them and kind of reducing them into 20 drug targets, minimum of a few years worth of work is what you would you should think of. And that was reduced to like one day, you know, just like wow. doing that. So that is that is kind of unheard of. I mean, the, the ability to kind of do such things now is possible with AI. So and now I'm going to take it to a, a different stage to, to bring it to COVID. If you think about all the vaccines that we got now, like mRNA vaccines, right? Moderna is one of them. And the the speed at which they're being, they've been able to develop these vaccines is amazing. And that, that is another one. Moderna used AI. And then they, with all the strains that we are getting, they have to go back and kind of, you know, bring up, come up with some booster shots and stuff. And so Moderna actually came up with a booster shot within 30 days, which is like, like unheard of. What I'm trying to say is 
AI has a role to play in in drug repurposing and drug development and kind of really changed the way we have done things in the past. I'm like a huge sort of medical history nerd. And I really like reading up on how medicine has evolved from like 200 years ago versus hundred years ago yeah. versus where we are now. And yeah. it always seems that as soon as we reach economies of scale with the new innovation, the growth is really exponential. And I feel like coronavirus is a catalyst that is going to do this for us. And the the characterization that I've read is in the next 10 years, we'll see more growth in the medical industry than we have in the past 200. Would you say that's true with with the advent of AI and and other things you've just mentioned? Yeah, I'm very, very enthusiastic like about saying, I'm sure you've heard the phrase precision medicine in the past, right? Could you actually define what precision medicine is? Precision medicine is, is, you know, this notion that, you know, we're all unique people, uh, we're all unique. And how can we create the right treatment for this, for this unique person at the right time? And it has to be precise to work for who you are. That is the thinking behind precision medicine. But, but if you think about, and, and you know, the people have been focusing on, on, on looking at that, the notion that we have created this blockbuster drugs that create one drug that's going to that's gonna work for everybody. That has been the approach that we have taken. That's in terms of drugs is what I'm talking about. But if you think about it, like there were some drugs that were uh, done recently, when you think about Keytruda is one in a, in an example. I think it was Merck was the pharmacy company that created Keytruda. They, they kind of took a different approach. They tried to say, okay, who, what is the desi- disease that we are trying to target? And they went very try to understand the biomarkers for that particular disease. And they developed something that was unique to the people who were, who had these biomarkers. So, so that's an example of say precision medicine in terms of drugs, but this notion that the medicine in order for us to kind of, you know, solve the unique problems that each of us have, I think we need to look at all the data that is out there that pertains to us, whether it is, you know, a lab data, whether it is your electronic health record data, whether it is your medical imaging data, whether it is your digital pathology data, and the data that's uh, that's not even in your clinical health system that you're generating your Fitbit and all the uh, your lifestyle data and so on. So all this data has to be fused somehow to kind of really look at you in this holistic manner. And of course, the genomic data, which I didn't mention, which is very unique to us. And so if there is a point in time where you are able to bring all these different parts of data that represents you holistically, then we will be able to kind of then match what is the right treatment for you that will work. And that is, that is in essence, the holy grail for what I'm, I'm talking about precision medicine is really looking at all of the data that is pertains to you. And, and we are not there yet in healthcare system. If you look at, I think that's where everybody wants to get to the point where you can look at wasn't, you know, what is, uh, you know, unique to wasn't, what makes wasn't unique and what are, hence, what are the treatments and so on. So that we are not there quite, but I'm very like optimistic the way we are, we are progressing with medical imaging. We saw a lot of already that option is happening sure. and then genomics, it's starting to happen with pathology. It has to happen. It, I'm trying to distill this the way I'm making sense of it is Everything exists, but you really need some sort of intermediary that can connect the data with the problem. And that intermediary currently doesn't exist. So effectively, the intermediary would not only collect the data, but also qualify the data, make sure that it's accurate, and then provide it to the engineers or the people in the field who can analyze Mm -hmm. it and 
turn it into um, some sort of intelligence. Is that what you're trying to say? It is partially, yeah. That's kind of, I'm trying to say that it's some parts of the data is already there in the format that you, that that works. But it's again, I was going back to saying, but the data doesn't quite exist in a way that can that's usable right now. It is in silos. It's not all in one place. Your complete representation is not in one place that somebody can kind of uh, put AI to work right away. So that is one thing. I mean, and also I would say AI is evolving so quickly and 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 I, it'll evolve, it'll go even faster. And there are things that needs to happen also in terms of uh, the evolution of AI. Right now we are we are deep learning kind of, you know, sprang into the, on the stage and it's kind of changed so many great things, but we still have other parts of AI needs to come to light, you know, the cognitive AI. I, I, I think you may be hearing about that. And there are so many aspects of AI that has to develop in parallel in order for us to kind of fuse these different data types, like all these different, like to really have a holistic view where we can bring this holy grail to picture. There has to be developments in how, what needs to happen with the data. There has to be developments in some parts of AI. Just to follow up on that, I remember after the Human Genome Project, there was this, you know, great, Mm -hmm. there was this great promise that Mm -hmm. there was going to be sort of a Cambrian explosion of personalized medicine rather than Mm -hmm. having medicine where it's sort of one size fits all, you know, we do mass trials and we figure out drugs that work for large groups of people. Medicine is going to be made specifically for you, just the genes for this one person. And Mm -hmm. that hasn't quite been the experience for me yet. You know, I haven't gone to a doctor and gotten special Faraz drugs prescribed to me, but it sounds like what you're saying is we're inching towards that. You're exactly right, Faraz, in that, you know, when the human genome happened, you're talking about billions of dollars and uh, so many plus years 13 plus years to get your to get your genome sequence and go to 23 and me and get it done for 800 bucks yeah that one is like you know that that is the consumer uh view the the version of you know we very limited what what we can do with the consumer version of 23 and me but still it has come to 100 uh, the, the i'm talking about really something like, you know, cancer genes to identify your cancer gene, whether you have cancer or not. And that level of work also can be done. It's not just 23andMe, but you can really do uh, some serious kind of, you know, you know, disease finding based on your genes, right? That can happen now in, in, in a few hundred dollars. That can happen. But, but again, we are still very limited. I think we know we, it's the biology part that we still need to get our hands on is to understand Biology. We are working with a com- with a, um, a company called Scripps Institute, and we looked at we were looking at clinical data to understand, uh, you know, somebody has a cardiac problem or not. But then, when we combined the genome, their genomic data with it, we could find some hidden patterns that we could not just look at the clinical data that we had. When we added the genomic data, we were suddenly we found like twenty three cases of uh, these patients were now who were not identified as having problems. We could identify them. So I feel like there are we are making like you know progress slowly, but I mm. think uh, it'll take us a while. But we we are on that path. But cool. but the, it is more than science. It's more than technology. I think there's also the regulatory and the incentive structure has to come together. So. You know, when we think of innovation in the software world, one mm-hmm. of the first thing that, that one of the first things that comes to mind is startups. So, mm-hmm. what do you think is going to happen? What do you think that the that the startups who are going to be disrupting medicine will be doing in the next five ten years? 
actually i mean it's quite interesting because startups is where i mean they are the ones that are pushing all the big companies to kind of move faster because if you look at you know the uh, investments that are happening in startups and and i'm i'm now going pre covid and obviously like let's say 2019 data if i remember it 80% of of the companies that received investments were able to kind of get through some level of uh, regulatory approvals to kind of that, that is kind of amazing because you you would think that you know startups are kind of you know doing this trial and error and trying to figure this out but they the ones that got investments were able to show that they could get through the regulatory framework show all the data that they need to show and get some kind of uh, preliminary approvals at least in one geography yeah hema i i know you've worked on a number of projects i think mm-hmm. the one that we made for us have sort of really looked into is the AI backpack that mm. helps people with visual impairments get around. Mm-hmm. At first I was like, wow, I know I've heard that AI is going to put people out of jobs. I never thought I was going to put seeing eye dogs out of jobs. <laughs> so I'm, <laughs> I'm curious to hear how you guys built yeah. this and sort of why, why did Intel build this? This was actually the creator of the backpack is, is a developer. He's an independent developer. His name is Jagadish Mahendran. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he actually... Uh, he is the winner of the open cv spatial ai contest and 2020 con- contest that we that was held and intel was the sponsor of this contest and and they it's one of the large world's largest spatial ai competition that that happened and and again just uh, without going too much into the details but intel has the as i mentioned to you they do hardware they do software then they one of the things we are very very keen about is the broad ecosystem and open cv actually was you know was born in at in, within intel the open cv the computer vision open source organization that was was born within intel and then we then put it outside intel so that it can be broader support but i didn't know so, that i yeah. i've used open cv before it's really cool software for for image recognition i think it's been like yeah. probably the most widely used thing in the space for like 10 years. I didn't know that was that came from Intel. It's really oh, cool. Oh yeah, yeah. It was within it was again an engineer's like, you know, idea. He came up with it and then a few bunch of them got together, kept doing it and then they realized that this should actually be outside so that there is a broader thing. So so OpenCV we so we have a very strong relationship with helping these uh, open source um organizations. So as we did this we actually because he's he's the winner we looked at his the what he built and it was the ai backpack that he built it is powered by intel technology it is it is using the intel's movidius vpu which is a vision processing unit it's a is a ai chip and then he's using open vino software those are the two pieces that actually helped him actually put this like plug and play you know the uh fashion he was able to put this ai backpack it was a very innovative way he thought about it and and i have to give you a, a little bit of background of uh, this gentleman and why he did this right here is a person he's an independent developer he's working he's doing his masters uh try in at the university of georgia he's trying to build robots he's trying to use uh, open cv i mean see the computer vision tools to kind of help his robots to see and then then he meets his friend who's a uh, a colleague who's uh, visually uh, impaired and then he sees and as they go through and as he understands that she's going through so much challenges in her daily life he's he's wondering i'm doing so much with robots and helping the robots to see why can i i do something with the current technology and that was his motivation and which is amazing because then he went and he used the board this oak d kit that that i think you may have that information already or we can share with you 
it's a it's a kit that has this processor that is so like it's a thumbnail sized processor that can do ai inferencing so that's the vpu and then there is the open uh, vero software which is you know the the ai inference software that's used for optimizing so he took the open vero software sorry if i if i could just interrupt here mm-hmm. i i like hack a lot of projects myself mm-hmm. so sometimes i write code sometimes i will build circuits and stuff and mm-hmm. This sounds really, really exciting. I didn't know that. I actually hadn't heard the term VPU. Maybe I, I've been living <laughs> under a rock. Um, <laughs> no, it's but it, a but it makes processing sense. unit. Yeah, right, yeah, it makes sense. So I'm you assuming should check that out. I, check it out. I, I was gonna, I was gonna ask. Like, as as like a hacker, I can immediately see a bunch of applications if I can have yeah. a super accelerated, like really effective way to do do like computer vision and image processing on a small like chip profile. So. What, what was what was it like? How, no, how would I go about buying this? You know, is there is there is you know there is one option like you know if you wanted to let's say play on your just on your laptop to kind of right. build something on your laptop, you could buy a forty five dollars like a, a a USB drive format. It comes in USB drive format, and that chip is on the on the USB drive. So it can be as small as that for applications that you could just do on your. on your laptop or it could be it could come in different you know size in uh, some small boards like ot board which is like i, I can send you the specifications is it's like half the size of a bread slice i'm amazed how many applications that people are just envisioning it that's what it's just limited by imagination because if you think about at the edge we are going to be generating all this data in 2025 or 70 plus percent of the data will be generated the, at the edge and analyzed at the edge so kind can of you, can you can you explain i've i've heard this term before about edge computing yeah. can you explain what that means yeah you know if you think about we when we think about ai we always think about everything that's happening on this big iron servers in the back somewhere in the cloud somewhere you have aws clouds and you know microsoft and google and that's what comes to mind right that we have this heavy duty servers that are sitting in the back or some somewhere in some big data centers but so if you just say all the computing that's happening outside of this data center big data centers and outside of this cloud then it's that's the definition of everything that's edge that is much closer to the user it's not quite the smartphones i mean smartphones are general purpose smartphones but if you think of anything that companies are doing or users are dealing with like you know i i talked about the imaging uh, equipment mris and scanners there's these are all edge devices and this gentleman the backpack that i'm talking about that's an edge device it's a device that is not quite a smartphone but it is kind of a very small form factor that is mm. uh, that is characterized by low power it has to fit into a very small form factor and it has to have some other requirements like latency requirements right it has uh. to happen real time so so there is a whole cpu that's kind of in his backpack there is a computer which to, today it's a computer but it could be much smaller the it could be another smaller form factor to do the host computing but essentially everything is happening at the edge and and the other thing i should also say that the, there is something called this model zoo because there are all these pre-trained models that have been created for so many other users and it's there in open source it's a model zoo so he picked up some model from there and then he may have used transfer learning or something to kind of adapt that to what he wanted to do and voila he has got things happening he's able to do things that was not possible before like and we and it was not me or somebody saying this this is great but he we talked to this visual impairment community and they are like this is great like you know nice. we, they can not only see the object detection they's not just doing a 2d saying 
there is an object there it is able to see it in 3d and kind of also tell you what's the depth how far you are from there so it's giving you indication ahead of time and so all of this is possible how does it how does it convey that information back to the visually impaired person is it through like vibration yeah, or sound or something it's, else it's actually he's using a bluetooth like a audio he's, ah. he's he's sending audio signal like you know to to kind of you know earphone into the earphone saying you know you know you 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 are going to have a safety hazard or there are branches in the way you know as you're walking so there are things that it's able to see and kind of give the feedback to them and the nice thing is that it's not going to keep bombarding information it'll allow the user to ask for it when he needs it but but when it sees something that's totally safety issue that has to is a very critical one then it'll come out it'll override everything and kind of say that's a safety issue and it'll give him or her enough of a kind of an indication much ahead of time it's it's this is just one of the applications i could go on for another hour talking to you about what all the other applications and and the amount of impact is amazing like i'll just tell you one more one more um, example if you think about the scale that is needed especially in some of the geographies i mean i'm from india so if i think if you think about the lack of you know the, the gap between the specialized uh, medical community to the amount of uh, help that's needed this ama- uh, that's a big gap and when you think of china that's a big gap you know there are only like 80000 radiologists for 1 billion people you know there is no way i mean we will be able to kind of provide uh, service to all the people that need the help and when you think of things like that i have seen this ai is actually able to make a tremendous progress right like if you think about the radiologists if 70% of the what you're looking at is all normal then that that that, that can be done by some another some technician maybe maybe 30% is where that needs to be looked at by the radiologist if that just that distinction you know if it is made what a great progress we have made and we have done that already we have worked with uh, you know hospitals in china where we were able to kind of you know look at lung nodule detection and kind of make that and then in india now the one that i'm working on is with shankarai foundation it's like and, and i happen to be part of the nonprofit so here but they, this rural community that is not getting the help that it needs for and they have and the, and the institution wants to eradicate curable blindness and so so the, the notion that you can predict something and prevent it from happening and that is the, the that is the promise of ai so let me just say one more thing one of the things that i feel like right now ai needs a lot of voices lot of diverse voices if we want to build and design ai for good we need people to learn that when they are young itself and that's one of the very focus areas we are thinking about is that we have designed programs called for ai for youth is one of the programs that we have where we are trying to kind of talk about the basics of ai and what are all the tools so there are programs that we are designing and because it's very essential that we learn that right away right before we start ai we learn uh, how to do ai for good and how do we what are the tools and stuff so that is um, something i want to let tell you that you know as sure. we think about ai one of the ways we can make ai better is to have ai be representative it has to have a lot of voices whether it's gender race you think about any 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 view that you can think of it has to incorporate all those different voices then only ai can be strong 
let's switch topics a little bit. I, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of our listeners are either students or they're software engineers and they want to see what they want to do next. And I think you've made mm-hmm. a great argument for why people should really look into AI interchanging with medicine and other, you know, a cutting edge technology like edge computing mm-hmm. with medicine. If you have mm-hmm. to give advice to somebody that's listening and as a student, what mm-hmm. would you tell them if they wanted to pursue this? What What is some actionable advice you'd give them? Way back when, when I, when I went to school, right? I didn't have all these resources. It's There is so much resources, whether it is inter, on Intel site or whether it's on YouTube, just look up some of the tools and the, in the open source community, look up the open source community. There are so many tools out there. Understand the, the different hardware uh, that is already out there. Understand the different software tools. Like OpenCV is a great organization that, like you know, where you will see a lot of the advancements in computer vision. If you're into com- in computer vision, that is one area that you should clearly look at OpenCV and look at look at all the open source tools. And so I think, and then I, you know, get involved in you know, if in hackathons, there is organizations that are putting out whether it's women in AI or even in our own, in OpenCV, there was a, a, the competition. So there's going to be all this. So get hands on, start using the tools that are out there, kind of contributing back into the open source community and, and open source is the way to go. I mean, I always learn a lot of these episodes and I feel like, especially today, and I mean, Faraz's brain is blown up at least like three or four times. Mm-hmm. So a final question that we ask all our guests to wrap up mm-hmm. the podcast is, what's the best piece of software you've ever used either in recent memory or of all time? Okay. So, you know, I think when I, if I go back, you know, I'm, I'm dating myself, I know, but you know, way back I was, I was part of the team at Intel that was designing CAD software for processor reliability verification. So we, I mean, we have used all kinds of tools, right? But but when Linux came into like you know into the picture, it's like it just and and the open source aspect of it. So it could be that it could be you know. But because I've also become this AI kind of enthusiast, and and I could talk about I could think that AI there's aspects of AI that that are so cool. But I just feel like you know where does it meet the what is the software that that can really impact humans at, at a large scale. And I come back to healthcare again. And so it just feels like, you know, the drug discovery area, AI for drug discovery, that, that or drug development or genomics. This is the place that I feel like the AI that will be developed that is that is there today, but it's going through a lot of changes. So that is the software that I feel like will impact in a, in a large scale. Got it. Well, Great. thank you, Emma. Thank you again for joining us. It was a pleasure having you. It was nice to be here. So that's it for our episode for today. Make sure to like, comment, subscribe. Actually, I don't think you you can do any of those things for podcasts except for subscribe. But make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Rate us on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends about the show. You can follow me on Twitter at FZ from Cupertino. You can follow me on Twitter at Next Vasant. I also run a small newsletter where I sort of talk about tech and other things. I recently released a letter on building a great podcast, though I'm not sure we have yet, but we're working on it. If you it, was a good, out, it was a good letter, though. Yeah, if you want to check that out, it's at nextbyte.substack.com. All right, see you guys next week.